Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, before you're seated, would you turn to the one beside you and say, you look like you've been losing weight. Come on, tell them that right now. <laughs> well, don't you feel better already? All right. What a joy to be with you great people at this great church. Wow, I love to be here. I love this church. I love everything about it. Thank God for you all. I mean, I walked, drove in this beautiful campus. Man, this is an unbelievable place. I listen to the great music, man. It is wonderful. You've got such great pastors. And, of course, your lead pastor, Pastor Steve Robinson. Man, what a man of God. You're, you're just a bunch of spoiled, rotten brats. How many realize that? How many like to be spoiled? Raise your hand real high. God loves to spoil his people. And so it is an honor to be here to a church that have poured thousands of dollars into the Dream Center. And I want you to know we don't take that for granted. I just want to say thank you so very, very much. And I went through the Dream Center that you're getting ready to build downtown. My goodness, there is going to be no venue like that anywhere across America. We got 266 Dream Centers, but let me tell you, there's none that's going to be located that place, that little auditorium. Seat about, what, 1,300? It's phenomenal. You are spoiled. You are blessed. You are blessed. You are blessed. Well, I'm going to get right into my message. I have a lot to say here today and uh, can't waste any time. However, before I do, I found out this morning that you just about bought me out last night of our new book entitled The Power of a Half Hour that we introduced on the Good Morning America program, which is Kathy Lee Gifford's program. You might have, we were the guests on that program introducing this book that is literally in every airport, every bookstore worldwide. It's become a bestseller. It will de deals with the power of a half hour, the waste of time that you spend waiting at the doctors, the waste of time at the airport. Most of our dreams are not met because we're out of time. This will help you with your time, but it's more than that. It's not a time manage management book. It is a life managing book. I think we got 24 of them left, and you can receive it on the way out, and I hope it's a blessing to you. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray today that you will anoint what I'm about to say. Lord, these are your people, and you love them dearly. I pray that you will give me the words that will touch the lives of people. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. When Pastor Steve asked me to come and speak, he said, I want you to do something different. I want you to tell your dream. I want you to give the history of how God has led you to where you are today. Well, that's unusual. I normally don't do that, so I'm not giving you a sermon today. It's more of an impartation. You see, when you look at Tommy Barnett, I hear a lot of people say, young preachers, that I'm a self-made man. Well, I'm not a self-made man. When you look at Pastor Tommy Barnett, you see a little bit of Oral Roberts. Oh, Robert used to come and spend time with me every year for a week, and we'd play golf in the daytime and talk about spiritual things at night. So he taught me how to have faith. When you see Pastor Barnett, you see a little of Oral Roberts. When you see Pastor Tommy Barnett, you see a little bit of Dr. Cho, who I've been on his board for many, many years. He taught me how to believe God for a great church. When you look at Tommy Barnett, you see a little bit of Herschel Barnett, who is my father. One of the great men that God used to build the assemblies of God. He taught me character and how to love God. 
I'm not a self-made. I'm a product of what I have seen and what I've heard. So today we're going to receive an impartation more than a sermon. You see, the world has only progressed as men have dreamed great dreams. Christopher Columbus had a dream of coming to the new world. Henry Ford. He had a dream of producing a car that everybody could afford, and he did. Martin Luther King had a dream, and even though he's been dead for years, there are millions that would lay down their life for this man's dream. Now, through the years, I have studied the great men and women of God. My library is filled of books, uh, of autobiographies and biographies of the great men. Through great books, I have walked the sawdust trail with Billy Sunday, the converted baseball player who used to preach with great fire. I've been on my travels to the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London where the great Charles Spurgeon at the age of 18 with no college education, not even a high school education, was called the pearl of great preachers and built the greatest church in all of England. I've stood in Angelus Temple where the Dream Center has church. I stood there where Amy McPherson built the first great mega church. A lady who was the Billy Graham, the woman Billy Graham of her day. I noticed these people were all completely different. But they all had one thing in common. They all had a dream. Some of them were quite different. Some were tall. Some were short like little A.G. Broughton, that fundamental Baptist preacher. Oh, is he a fireball? He was less than five feet tall. One day he got in a debate publicly before a lot of people with a great big huge atheist. And he was getting the best of that atheist. And the atheist got mad and turned on him and said, you little sawed off shrimp, ought to just chew you up and swallow you. And A.G. Broughton said, if you did, you'd have more brains in your stomach than you have in your head, amen. <laughs> Some of them had booming voices like George Whitfield. He could preach to 10,000 people in an open field without amplification. They could hear him. The more godly ones were very hoarse and had raspy voices. Amen. <laughs> Some of them had bushy heads of hair. The more spiritual ones were losing their hair. Amen. <laughs> Some preached with no notes like Billy Sunday, that baseball player. And then there were those like Jonathan Edwards who read their sermons word for word didn't even read them good, looking through thick spectacles. But yet there was such an anointing upon him that the sophisticated of Boston dug their fingernails in the walls as they hung to the walls as he preached on sinners in the hands of an angry God. Yes, they were different. But they all had one thing in common. They had a compelling dream. You see, a dream will lift you out of yourself into another self that is greater than yourself. Let me repeat that. I said a dream will lift you out of yourself into another self that is greater than yourself. And you will never know what your capacity is until you have a compelling dream. Now, I cannot live without a dream. A dream gets me up in the morning. A dream gets me through the day. A dream gets me excited. But this is very important. It is more important that you have a dream than even reaching your dream. There was a young man in my church. He was in love with this girl. I mean, she was drop-dead beautiful. 
And he wasn't too cool, to be honest with you. But he always said to me, Pastor, I'm going to marry that girl someday. Now, that girl didn't know he existed. She would not have spit on him if he was on fire. Amen. But he didn't even need her. He had a dream. He was happy in his ignorance. I'm trying to tell you, everyone needs a dream. Now, here's the question. I know there are people in this building who have dreams. They're big dreams. You don't dare tell anybody else because you fear that they might laugh at you. But you say in your heart, I would give everything that I owe for this dream. I would be willing to give all my money, all my time, all my energy, and I'd be willing to give my life if I were sure it's God's dream. But I don't want to give this all to it if it's my dream. So pastor, how can I know that my dream is God's dream? Let me give you three ways that you can gauge. Number one, you can be sure it is God's dream if it's bigger than you. If it's so big, everybody says, he's not hot enough to pull it off, and God gets the glory. If your dream is so big that there's no way that you could accomplish it without God's help. You know, it's pretty amazing to me that everybody can dream big except the church. Spielberg can make a movie, $200 million. We say, that's okay, that's Hollywood. I read the other day where in Vegas they are finishing a casino that's going to cost $2 billion. We say, but that's Las Vegas. Steinberger can build Yankee Stadium, $1 billion. We say, that's okay, that's sports. But you let a pastor or a man of God get a big dream. And the people say, let's pray that God will humble that brother. He needs a work of grace in his life. He's on the ego trip. But let me tell you, the pastor, the leader that's going to reach the Steinbergers, that's going to reach the entrepreneurs, they're going to have to have a bigger dream than those people. And the biggest dreamers ought to be in the world should be the people of God because he told us that the earth is ours to inherit for the glory of God. Is your dream bigger than you? Number two, you can be sure it's God's dream if you can't let it go. You see, dreams are elusive. At first, you have to hold tenaciously to them because they get away from you. But there comes a time in your life that you get tired of holding on to the dream. You let go of the dream, but the dream won't let go of you. You see, you are now a prisoner of that dream. The Bible put it this way. We're prisoner of the hope that lives within us. And what you're a prisoner to, you are chained to. And if this dream is from God, you may stand up to resign and say, I give up on the dream. But even as you open your mouth, you re-enlist again. You're a prisoner. Oh, this is good. I just love my preaching. Come on, say it good. Amen. <laughs> you're a prisoner of the hope that is within you. It has been said that if you keep a dream for five years, that dream will come to pass. But as you know, most people can't keep a dream for five years. Discouragement comes. The naysayers come. The doubt peddlers come. And we scrap the dream. The Bible says that if you'll hold on to it, you'll receive the dream if you faint not. 
But number three, if the dream is God's dream, you would be willing to give your life for that dream. I am so convinced that the dream center that I'm giving my life to and the life mission that God has put me on today is so much God's dream that I would gladly die for that dream. You say, Pastor, where did it all start? I guess I became a real dreamer when I was in Bible college at Southwestern University. I sat in chapel as a 17-year-old boy. The speaker that day was kind of boring, I have to admit. But he read a scripture from Jude 22 that went this way. And some having compassion, making a difference. And then he made a statement. He said, you can make a difference in the world. I thought to myself, what is this guy talking about? You see, I grew rather late and I was kind of inferior. I didn't go with the girls till I was about 20 years of age because the only ones that were smaller than me were in the nursery department. So, <laughs> But he had the audacity to say that I can make a difference in the world. But he was a very wise man. And he came back and said, you may not be able to make a difference in the world, but you can make a difference in your world. And I said, you know, I, I could do that. The bell rang, and the kids scampered off to class. But I knelt in the front seat of that auditorium, all alone, and prayed, oh, God. I'm not as talented as many of these kids are. But I promise you, God, that I'll give it everything I got. I'll try to make a difference in my world. My world was very small. I'd go out on weekends and speak in little churches of 50 to 100, but then I graduated. And I went to my first pastorate in Davenport, Iowa. I had 76 people in the church, second the D6 of the meanest Christians you've ever seen. <laughs> Just to get enough inspiration to preach, I'd quote that scripture, be not dismayed by their faces. <laughs> they used to say little things like, we're not big, but we're spiritual. We're not big, but we're clean. They were almost clean out of business, if you know what I mean. They said, we had quality, not quantity. Don't ever say that. That's dumb. <laughs> if you have quality, you will have quantity. If we'll be what we ought to do, be, we'll do what we ought to do. And if we do what we ought to do, we'll spread our doctrine wherever we'll go. And daily, they'll be added to the church. You can't keep a New Testament church small. That's a good place to say a good amen. amen. But that little church that Budget, the total budget for the year, the total income was $25,000 a year. They paid the bills. If there was any left, I got it and used it. There was none left. We sold the building because we grew and we needed a bigger building. Guess what we sold that building you saw for? $10,000. That's the kind of place that it was. I knew something had to be done. The church was negative. It was dead. Nobody wanted to take the church. But that was the only church that would have me. So my dad gave me a bus. He had an old bus that he didn't use anymore. And we started bringing in people, and we had more people on the bus than we had in the church. <laughs> so we bought a second bus, and soon it was filled. And then we bought five buses, and they were filled. And then we had 10, and then we had 20, and then we had 30, and then we had 40 buses and 47 buses bringing in about 3,000 
men and women and mostly children, the poorest of the poor. People used to make fun and say, all he's got is a bunch of kids and some people that nobody else wants. Our building, we had to build it fast, so it was a metal building. <laughs> and our critics called it the sheep shed. I kind of like that, amen. <laughs> and the church exploded. It was during that great revival where thousands were coming to church. We grew in eight years from 70 to over 4,000 people and became the first mega church in the Pentecostal world. During that time, I was invited to go to Nashville, Tennessee to speak for Jimmy Snow. He was, Nash, uh, he was Hank Snow's son. One night as I preached, guess who walked in? Johnny Cash and June Carter. When the service is over, God moved upon his heart. The Lord impressed me to change my message and preach on what should a prophet a man if he should gain the world and lose his soul. Mr. Cash came to me and said, Pastor, I was very stirred. I'm going to think over what you say. And the next Sunday, he came back and gave his heart to Jesus Christ. I got all excited. A year later, I got a dream. And I called him and said, Mr. Cash, I want to have the world's greatest Sunday school. We can rent John O'Donnell Stadium, and we can get about 30,000 people in there. If you will come and I will sing at 9 in the morning, We'll call it the world's greatest Sunday school, and I believe we can have the greatest crowd. He said, I'll do it. He brought his entire caravan, two big semi-trucks. He brought all these PA systems. His fee was about $100,000 an appearance. Today, that'd be worth three or $400,000. And he came and would not take a penny, paid for everything. Over 30,000 people, the greatest crowd in the history of that city came that day. He sang and I preached and the newspaper said my sermon was as hot as the 100 degrees temperature was that day. <laughs> and when I gave the invitation, Johnny Cash sang, come home, come home, it's supper time. And 6,000 people came forward to accept Christ as their personal Savior. <laughs> my world got bigger. And then one day, Amidst this great revival, our United States Senator found Christ in our church. When Ronald Reagan came to our city, they let me, ask me to introduce him, to sit with him at the banquet. I mean, God was doing something great. Amidst this great revival, I woke up one morning and found that I had lost the conscious presence of God. Now, it wasn't that God was not with me, but sometimes when God wanted to get my attention, you know what he did? He just withdrew his consciousness because he knew that I'd rather die than live without the presence of God. It drove me to my knees and I begged God, God, send your presence back. And God spoke to me one day and said, I want you to get out of the waste paper basket that invitation that you got from Phoenix, Arizona to come and preach. <laughs> I knew that church. When they invited me to come and they wanted me to be their pastor, they read about 200. They'd had six pastors in 10 years. They were known as a preaching, killing church. And when I got that letter, I said, get behind me, devil, and threw it in. <laughs> but I dug it out. So I went and I, I spoke to those 200 people. And God spoke to me and said, I want you to leave the land of the people that you love like Abraham. 
And I'll make you a promise that I'll give you a hundredfold of what I gave you at Davenport, Iowa. I'm not too smart, but a hundredfold of 4,000 is 400,000. And I remember going, and my world got bigger. You know the story. The pastor's conference that we trained near 200,000 pastors through these 36 years. The great pageant that God raised up at Christmas time. Near 100,000 people come in 16 performances. And revival broke out and became one of the largest churches in America today. My world got bigger. But one day, the superintendent of the Assemblies of God, Dr. George Wood, he wanted an appointment, and he marched into my office in Phoenix, Arizona, and sat down and said, I'm embarrassed to ask you what I'm going to ask you. I didn't realize that this campus, which is worth about $100 million, I did not realize that it was such a great thing. But I felt like God was calling me to tell you, we've watched you for years, and you seem to have a heart for hurting poor people. I want to invite you to come to L.A. We have nothing to offer you but a small ghetto church. But we have to offer you a great opportunity. How many of you hate those great opportunities? Amen. <laughs> no money, but a great opportunity. And I'll never forget, as he arranged for me to fly over L.A. in a jet helicopter, a large businessman, one of the richest men in Southern California, who was a Christian, had a a map that he had color-coded, and as we flew over, he would point out, down there, there's 500,000 Koreans that live right there. We flew a little further. He said, there's a million Jews that live in this area. We flew a little further, and he said, there are over a million Filipinos in this area. And he began to point out the most ethnic diversity in the world. And instead of being inspired, I looked down, and fear came upon me. 10 million people in L.A. County 25 million in the area. I thought, oh God, I'd be like a little ant. How, how could you ever make a difference? How could you even advertise in that jungle of people? And the words of that chapel came to me. You just make a difference in your world. And if you make a difference in your world, maybe God could use you to make a difference in the world. I tried to get a pastor to help me. The agreement was I would come over two days a week from Phoenix and help them. And I'd get a pastor to work with me. And I, I talked to all the great pastors and the great evangelists to come and help me to be the pastor with me of that church. And they all got excited when I articulated the vision. But when they came and saw it, they got very spiritual on me. And they said they didn't believe that God was calling them to that area. I looked all over and I couldn't get a good preacher so I got Matthew, amen, thank God. And I took my little 20-year-old boy with me. I'll never forget that day that I left him on the steps of that little ghetto church. He had never pastored, he was 20. The church averaged over 80 years of age per person, literally, over 80 years. The pastor was 85 that he was going to take his place. Most of the people didn't even speak English, they were Filipinos. When I left him, one, Alvin Slaughter, you know, the outstanding African-American singer, he came, was one of our first guests, and he said, that's the whitest kid I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he called him Casper the Friendly Ghost. <laughs> How are we going to reach the city? And as I looked back and I saw him waving, 
I began to weep. I thought, God, I've set this boy up for failure. There's no way he can succeed. He has no training in cross-cultural evangelism. I caught the plane. It was about an hour flight back to Phoenix. Upon arriving in Phoenix, the phone rang. It was Matthew. He said, Dad, you can't believe what happened. No sooner than you left than I heard gunshots. I ran to the front of the building, and I saw this teenage boy sliding down the steps with blood pouring out of his chest. He'd been shot by drive-by shooters, and I held him in my arms as he bled and died. He said, Dad, I don't know what to do. He hadn't even had his first Sunday service, but that night was a youth night, and he gathered with his youth about six. And he said, we've got to do something, but I don't know what to do. He called me up and said, Dad, what am I going to do? I said, son, I don't know. So he stood before the youth and said, I don't know what to do, but my dad has always taught me when you don't know what to do, take an offering. Amen. <laughs> so he took an offering. He got 30 some odd dollars, walked across the street where that little boy lived, knocked on the door and said to the Hispanic mother, I'm the pastor, I knew your son, it's not much. We went to help you on the funeral and gave the 30 some odd dollars. She began to weep and said, come in, Padre. He'd never been called Padre before, but he went in. It was filled with gang members and they would go to the mother and say, we're sorry. And she would slap them and curse and said, you killed my boy. You got him killed. Matthew said, tension was high. And I felt led to leave. And I got to the door and put my hand on the knob. And suddenly a big gang member hit me on the shoulder and spun me around. I'm looking at the meanest gang member I've ever seen in my life, Matthew said. And I felt like saying, Lord, I'm coming home. <laughs> when the gang member said, Padre, before you leave, will you pray for me? And Matthew joined hands in a circle and begin to pray. And he prayed a little sweet prayer like, you know, Lord, bless the trees, the birds and the bees. The birds that fly in the tree. And God spoke to him and said, quit praying that little pansy prayer. And suddenly the Holy Spirit came upon him and he said, God, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke this demonic spirit that kills. And I mean, he went at it. And suddenly on each side, the gang member squeezed his hand and he thought, oh, they're gonna kill me when I quit praying. But when he finished, they took his hands and they raised them up like this. You are one of us. And he led all 10 of the gang members to Jesus Christ. You talk about excited. He's excited now. He called and said, Dad, we don't understand cross-culture evangelism, but I learned something. I learned you can't fight love and I'm gonna love these people. And I wanna start Thanksgiving by giving everybody in the neighborhood a turkey. Would you go to your church and ask them to bring in a frozen turkey? So I went to my turkeys. I mean, I went to my church, amen. I asked them all to bring a frozen turkey. And over 3,000 turkeys came. We put them in a refrigerated truck. They were on their way to LA when Matthew called and said, Dad, I made a mistake. These Hispanic people have told me they don't like turkey, they like chicken. I said, son, don't worry, just tell them these are chickens on steroids, amen. You gotta do what you gotta do. How many realize that? Well, they love the turkeys and Matthew called and said they're excited. Dad, Christmas is coming and I wanna give everybody in the neighborhood a Christmas gift. All the kids, I wanna give a toy. Isn't it great to have a dad with a big church? Amen. <laughs> so I told my people we need presents. One man, are you ready to hear this? 
bought 5,000 brand new bicycles. And revival began to break. Uh, the crowd would come. It was amazing. I'd give an altar call and 100 people would be at the altar. I've never seen so much leather. I've never seen so many earrings here and here and here and here and here. Only God knew where they had them. I didn't ask. Amen. And the Bible said, go into the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Boy, do we have creatures in L.A. Amen. I didn't know how to reach L.A. So one day I got on Christian television and said, look, We've got this great Queen of Angels Hospital. We made a deal with them that we would give them $500,000 down. If they'd let us move in and we'd come up with the rest of the money in a year and a half, which would be $3.4 million. I didn't have the foggiest idea where the money was going to come from. But I learned something. I learned money follows ministry. You don't get the money and do the ministry. You do the ministry. And God sends the money. Miraculously, God did it. But people begin to come to me and say, Pastor, one man said, I've been going down Sunset Boulevard. I've been going there for 12 years, reaching kids that came to be movie stars, but they ran out of money, and they ended up under the bridge or in burnout houses or sleeping in dumpsters. And I lead them to Christ, but I have no place to take them. I said, silver and gold have I none. But I got 1,400 rooms at this hospital. And we gave him a floor. And revival broke out among these little kids with spiked hair, purple hair. And revival broke out. Another man came to me and said, oh, pastor. He said, for almost 20 years, every Friday night, I go out at midnight till 3 o'clock in the morning. And I go down Hollywood Boulevard. And by the way, every Friday night now, there are 60 kids. It's their ministry. They go out at midnight till four in the morning armed only with an armful of roses. And they find these little girls that are wore out, that are depressed. As low as 12 years of age, we have one girl in our human factor program. And they're wore out, used by evil men. They're depressed. And they give them this rose. And they say to them, you're as beautiful as this rose. And then they say, this rose also represents the rose of Sharon. And they tell them the old story about the precious Lamb of God who died for their sins. The little girls begin to weep and they say to them, would you like to go to a place that you can get away from this, get away from your pimp? They'd protect you. They'll give you your GED. They'll help you get a job. You can stay a year. It won't cost you a penny. You can stay as long as you need to. And suddenly their little eyes light up. And the little girl says, yeah, I'd like to. And then they say to her, well, come on, let's go right now. And suddenly fear comes into her face. And she says, I can't do it. My pimp's over there. He'll kill me. He'll kill you. And we say to her, if you really mean business, you stand right here on this street corner. And we'll be by in 15 minutes in our van, and we will slow down and slide the door open, and you just jump in and we'll rescue you. Fifteen minutes later, we come by. The door slides open. She jumps in. The pimp runs and gets in his car, and the race is on. <laughs> but what that little girl, what the pimp does not realize 
that we call ahead to the Dream Center. And we got 200 men in discipleship that are barely out of prison and barely saved. Amen. Thank God. I mean, sometime you got to go gangster. Come on. Say a good amen. Gangsters for God. Amen. I mean, we got everything at the Dream Center. We got pimps. We got prostitutes. We got gang members. We got drug addicts. And that's just the pastoral staff. <laughs> I'm trying to tell you that it all started with a dream, a story, and I'm done. One of our girls had been at the Dream Center where you're going, kids. One of our wonderful young ladies, she was going home after serving a year. She got on the airport. She got bumped up to first class. She didn't know why. But she found herself sitting beside a man who was very wealthy. She found out he was from London, England. He was a Jewish man worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Boys, she told what God had done in her life. The fellow was touched and tears began to down his cheek. He says, it sounds like a place I need to go visit. She said, I'll arrange a tour of my pastor. So I gave him the tour. The man was stirred beyond words. Following this little tour, we go to church and we have a message. Well, that night when I preached, he gave his heart to Jesus. He was so on fire that once a month he flew all the way from London, England, in his jet to our church once a month. And we can't get you out of bed sometimes on Sunday morning. Amen. <laughs> One day he called and said, Pastor Barnett, I got to talk to you before church. I said, okay. So we met before church and he said, Pastor, I saw a movie that changed my life. It was called The Bucket List. He said it was about two men in a hospital. They're dying with cancer. They have one year to live. One's rich, one's poor. They're depressed. But one day the rich man walked in. He saw a piece of watered up legal paper and he straightened it out. And he said, what is this? It said, jump out of an airplane, drive a race car, climb the Himalayas, kiss the most beautiful girl in the world. And he said, what is this? And the guy said, well, that's my bucket list. That's what I wanted to do before I kicked the bucket, but we're not gonna get to do it. We're gonna die. And suddenly the rich man smiled and said, look, I've got all the money in the world. I've got jets. Let's do your bucket list. We got a year to live. And the rest of the movie, the two old codgers were jumping out of airplanes, <laughs> swimming with the sharks, trying to climb the Himalayas, and trying to kiss the most beautiful girl in the world. And he said, Pastor, when I saw that movie, I thought of you. He said, I want you to do your bucket list. I want you to not hold back. I've got all the money in the world. I've got the jets. I want you to make a bucket list of what you want to do, and you and I'll take a year off and do anything you want to do. Woo! So I, I got by myself. I took out my legal pad, and I wrote down. I thought, what do I want to do? I thought, I don't want to jump out of an airplane. The Bible said, lo, I am with you always. <laughs> I didn't want to swim with the sharks. It's bad enough to drive with my wife. I don't want to drive a race car. <laughs> and I've already kissed the most 
beautiful girl in the world. And if I kiss another, she'll kill me. Amen. <laughs> and I thought, and I thought, and I thought. And for the life of me, I couldn't think of anything I'd rather do than feed another little hungry child then rescue another little girl in human trafficking. Then stand up and give an invitation for people to come to Jesus Christ. And I closed my eyes and prayed, oh God, if I ever get too old to preach the gospel if my mind won't think clear and my body's not healthy enough, I just pray, God, that you'll take me on to heaven. For what is there to live for? If you cannot serve your generation, if you cannot live out God's dream for your life, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. In just a minute or two, this, my part will be through. But I believe I'm talking to someone that as they listen to me speak, he thought, here's an old guy, 79 years of age, and so much dream is still within his heart. And you sit there and think, I have nothing to live forward to. I'm healthy. I'm young. I got years ahead of me. There's no reason to get up. When the alarm goes off in the morning, I have no purpose. I have no will to live. I need God. And I'm talking to people that need God, and they need him bad. And you're not here by accident. God brought you here. But many people were at the festivities downtown. But God had a dream for your life. And he wants it to be yours this morning. And it starts when we give our life to Jesus Christ. So while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if God spoke to you while I was preaching, and you're not satisfied with your life, and you need God, and you need him now, and you need the peace of God, I'm going to ask you, to raise your hand in just a minute. And I'm going to pray for you right from this mic. No one will know who I'm praying for except you and God, and I will. The reason I ask, I can pray better for you if I know who you are. So if you'd like for me to pray with you while every head is bowed, every eye is closed, I believe when I ask you to raise your hand, the hands are going to go up all over this building. If you'll say, that's me, Pastor. I've lost my way. I need a dream from God. Put your hand up right now all over this building. They're going up all over this building. Keep raising them. There must be 75 of your 100, maybe more, all over this building. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. I'm going to ask you to join me in a prayer. It's called the prayer of repentance. And the Bible said when it's prayed with a genuine, heartfelt, mean prayer that God hears and forgives. So I'm going to ask everyone to join me. You that raise your hands, you that know God, would you please join in? I want this prayer to sound like thunder. And Christ is going to come to your heart right now. Everybody join me together. Dear God, I need a Savior. You said that if I would ask you, that you would forgive me. I believe you, Lord. I repent of my sin. I give my life to you. You are now my Savior. You're now my Lord. I want to serve you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Come on, give the Lord a good clap offering. Thank God. Oh, thank you, Lord. Rejoice. Stand to your feet right now, everybody. Lord, I pray for these people that have lost their dream. Many who do not have a dream. I pray, God, that you will cause that dream to ferment within their life. In Jesus' great name. Amen. I love you, folks.